G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. In Chapter 4 of 1993, we're off to sassy, funky Puerto Rico. I hope you enjoy the ride. Puerto Rico was loose. Too loose. It was only 150 kilometres east of Tortola across the Caribbean Sea, but it was a whole other universe. For surfers from the US eastern states, the Rincon Puntas area in the northwest corner of the island had been a surf party, draft dodgers paradise since the mid-1960s. By 1968, it was high enough, pun intended, on surfers' radar to host the World Surfing Championships. Being a US territory, but not a state, it was a bit like the Wild West. Every day held the possibility of the best or the worst of times, or both. Some of the local gringo crew had come for the surf, some had come for the parties. The gang I spent most time with seemed to have walked straight out of songs Bruce Springsteen wrote about his New Jersey hometown on his first few albums. They said things like, You can't read a book without turning the pages, you know what I mean, pal? Time with them was one long crack-up. They owned surfboards but never took them in the water. Often they'd be settling into party mode before lunchtime. I'm not saying that's wrong, it just meant we didn't get much done. Two of them were terrific guitar players and a couple played harmonica. I hoped our Rincon gang could make a band and look for work in the local bars and restaurants. I'd spent downtime in Barbados and Tortola writing songs on the cheap travel guitar I'd bought in London. In my idealistic haze, I planned to record them somewhere, somehow, on the road. But though a dozen inspired jams went down in houses and bars and on beaches, we never organised a real rehearsal or a gig. And despite my plan B to make an album by simply recording one of our jams down at their awesome farmhouse in the valley, that never happened either. Pretty emblematic of this state of mind was when an American guy we half knew came to find us in a bar called, appropriately, Trouble in Paradise, or Tips for short. There's an open mic night tonight up in Aguadilla. I can drive you there, he said. So we gathered our instruments and climbed into his car, two in the front and four in the back. The road from Puntas, our village, to the main road that leads to Aguadilla, is narrow and runs downhill through farmland. By the time we were halfway down the hill, we'd missed two head-on collisions by inches. I hadn't fully realised before, but our driver was seeing double drunk. As passing headlights came towards us, he'd drive straight towards them. Since I was sitting on Jimmy's knees, on the left side of the back seat, with no seat belt on, the coming collision was going to be infinitely worse than a rusty knife in the eye. By the time we'd reached the bottom of the hill, we were doing about a hundred clicks, and I could see in slow motion what was going to happen next. Our road met the main road at such an angle there would be no need for our homicidal driver to slow down to join it. In the distance, a single car was heading toward us at the perfect speed to meet us head-on where the two roads joined. Sure enough, our driver ignored both stop signs and drove straight at the onrushing headlights. Marco, in the passenger seat, grabbed the steering wheel and pushed it to the right. By the grace of God, the driver of the other car did the same thing, and at a closing speed of a couple of hundred kilometres an hour, we passed within a few centimetres of each other. 
As soon as we'd stopped fishtailing and regained coherent motion, I had to find a way to escape. Knowing that even a drunk can picture the consequences of someone spewing in their car, I told them I was about to throw up. My bandmates weren't having any of it. No, no, you've got to come, man. You're the only one who knows the words of the songs. And we continued weaving at high speed towards Aguadilla. With desperation approaching panic, I was surprised to discover that while my nausea had begun as a lie, I could now easily produce real vomit if required. But before that happened, the driver got the picture. He was probably renting the nice BMW I was trapped in, and he pulled over and stopped. I climbed out and fake stumbled to the roadside fence, pretending to be about to yak. Marco followed me over to see if I was okay. I'm fine, I said, but I'm not getting back in that car. I'm going to walk home. Okay, said Marco, I'll keep you company. So we grabbed our guitars out of the trunk, waved the others off to Aguadilla, and walked the three k's back up the hill to Puntas. Whenever headlights appeared, we hid behind trees, giggling as if we were ten-year-olds playing spotto, to avoid the attention of the night's other drunk drivers. Like the Wild West, it seemed there were no police in our corner of Puerto Rico. This was why most homes were completed by the addition of at least one brute of a dog who'd rip your leg off given half a chance. This I discovered the only time I walked the few k's home at midnight from the Boys Valley farmhouse. As I tiptoed past each one-acre property, a different breed of hellhound came crashing through the darkness to bark, snarl and salivate in my direction. All that stood between me and live disembowelment were flimsy wooden posts connected with just enough rows of barbed wire to keep the beasts on their home turf. The big stick and half brick I picked up for defence would have been as good as useless if one of the dogs had broken through their fence. The only effect these makeshift weapons had was to alarm the town drunk who witnessed me emerge from the darkness at the edge of town after I'd run the gauntlet. Another American our gang knew had rented a house near Puntas for the six-month surf season. He was living what he thought would be the dream, surfing every day it was good while growing a forest of hydroponic marijuana in his attic. He planned to sell this crop locally, or send it back to the States somehow, to pay for his next surf adventure or three. Intelligent and talented, he didn't seem like the guy who'd choose that path. He told me this had been the worst six months of his life. As soon as the plants had started growing, he'd become paralysed by paranoia. He couldn't share his secret with anyone, even his closest friends, in case their gossip found its way to the wrong ears. It wasn't so much the police he feared. Much more dangerous were the invisible Puerto Rican criminals who had their own drug-growing operations and would tolerate no gringo competing with their trade. The last time I saw my mate, let's call him Billy, after the young drug smuggler who ends up in the Turkish jail in Midnight Express, was at La Station Bakery in Rincon one Wednesday at lunchtime after a morning of good surf. I'd watched Billy park his car in the 90-degree spaces across from the bakery. As he crossed the narrow two-lane street, his truck silently followed him, rolling backwards down the gentle slope of the car park, then curving sideways across two lanes of traffic on its previous lock. Billy must have left it out of gear and forgotten to pull the handbrake on. He was lucky it didn't run him over. Instead, it swung silently past the bemused traffic, somehow missing everyone and everything, until it came to rest against the curb. It wasn't until I met Billy at the bakery door to point it out that he saw what had happened. 
Over lunch that day, he told me he'd decided to get the hell out of Puerto Rico and disappear back to America. He was going to leave the now fully grown crop in the attic for the landlord or the next tenant or someone, anyone, to deal with. The day before, we'd all heard the too believable rumour that an American in a village just up the coast had been shot in the head by a Puerto Rican gangster for reasons that were too easy to guess. The only time I saw police of any sort in Puntas Rincon was on my first morning at Domes Beach. I'd got up before dawn and walked through the firefly-filled bush that separated my place from the sea. As I arrived by the dome of the decommissioned nuclear reactor that gives the beach its name, I heard shouting and running. A hundred metres away, three rough young men were doing their best to disappear up the hill into the low trees and scrub. Pursuing them were half a dozen men wearing dark blue uniforms saying, Immigration. By the time I'd checked the surf, two of the young men had been caught, handcuffed and manhandled into a van. The other might have got away. I learned later this corner of the island is a popular spot for illegal immigrants arriving by sea from the Dominican Republic, just 50 kilometres to the west, across the Mona Channel. Since Puerto Rico is an American territory, illegal immigrants from the Caribbean try to use it as a stepping stone. If they can get to PR, it's easier to sneak into the USA by some back door than it is from their home islands. There were other manifestations of Puerto Rico's relationship with the USA. My first hour in PR was spent sitting in a taxi trapped in a traffic jam on a 12-lane highway in the capital city, San Juan. With zero public transport on offer, the only way to travel the 150 k's to the surf coast was via the most expensive taxi ride of my life. Luckily, I shared the fare with a young kid who introduced himself as Danny from Brooklyn, New York. Danny told me he was making the journey to Rincon to, quote, make something of my life. Since he wasn't a surfer, it'd be a fair guess to suspect he was beginning a career as a drug mule. Another enduring monument to the USA's relationship with Puerto Rico was, to give it its full name, the Boiling Nuclear Superheater Reactor that the US government had built and operated through the 1960s, just 100 metres from the island's best surf. This location had been chosen because the fallout from any catastrophe would be carried by the prevailing winds across the Caribbean islands, Central America or Europe instead of the USA. God bless America. The eerie, rusting dome of the decommissioned reactor loomed forever above the otherwise rural coast. It wasn't surprising that on a concrete wall not far from the reactor, someone had spray-painted, Out of Puerto Rico, gringos cabrones. Cabrones is Spanish for assholes. It wasn't hard to see the artist's point. The local I got to know best was my landlord, Tony. He'd created a unique living space by painting the floor, walls and ceiling of my single-room apartment in an exuberant melange of red, white and blue. It was the perfect digs for me, enough of an ocean view for surf checks, just a five-minute walk through the bush to the waves, and, best of all, only 15 bucks a night. 
Tony had his demons, and one of them was a child's baby doll that hung by its neck from a length of wire nailed to the eave of his house so it was visible from the street. He grew very upset when I asked him why it was there. His English was only a little better than my Spanish, which I had just embarked on learning. But as far as I could understand, there had been some massive disagreement with someone in his family, and he'd woken one morning to find the ghoulish baby doll hanging there. It was Puerto Rican voodoo, an evil curse, he explained, and there was nothing he could do about it. Tony blamed the curse for driving him to drink. Each time we talked during our four weeks as neighbours, our conversation veered back towards the doll. I wanted to help him with it and hoped that my status as an outsider might prove useful. Like most Puerto Ricans, Tony was Catholic, so I deployed the theological lessons that had been hammered into us three times a week at school. Hadn't God defeated Satan and thrown him into hell? Hadn't Jesus promised forgiveness? Surely then, good magic must be stronger than bad magic. I don't know whether Puerto Rican voodoo defers to Christianity, but on the second last morning of my stay, I saw the hanging baby doll had disappeared. Apart from my chats with Tony and the occasional moment in the surf on weekends, I spent nearly no time with Puerto Rican males. It was as if they had given this corner of their island to the gringos, except for when the surf got epic. On the other hand, like the salsa music that strutted and bounced from every house, shop and bus, the Puerto Rican females were around us all day and into the night. I'd played a small part in a school production of West Side Story, and from that had developed the notion that Puerto Rican girls were sexy and sassy. Well, they certainly were. They were there on the beach, in the shops and bars, always smiling and introducing themselves. As far as I could tell, they weren't prostitutes, and to my knowledge, they never permitted direct intimacy. But by gum, they could flirt. They reasoned, and with justification, it must be said, that their feminine charm could be their way, and perhaps their whole family's way, to a more affluent part of the world. I learned early on not to be surprised or offended when the attractive girl who'd been so chatty to me the night before was even more chatty to the gringo who arrived at the beach the next day in an expensive hire car. They were beautiful, charming and pragmatic. One or two of them brought young children, presumably theirs, when they made daytime visits to Rincon from Mayaguez, the city 30 k's to the south. I've got no idea if they were married, but wouldn't have been at all surprised if a husband, brother or boyfriend had turned up with a gun or a knife. So due to the perennial party culture and the flirting of the local girls, it was also no surprise that when a good swell finally arrived after a week's wait, my eye wasn't on the ball. Remember, in those days, surf forecasting was your own responsibility and required access to meteorological information beyond my reach in Puntas. Wiping the sleep from my eyes at 10.30 after one beer and pool game too many the night before, I saw dark blue lines wrapping into the coast. Dagnabbit! I grabbed some breakfast and my board and ran down to the coast. After jumping off the rocks at El Faro, I ended up at Dogman's, about two kilometres south, surfing the point and Maria's on the way. The waves were big, blue and powerful, sweeping southwards down our corner of the coast. The names of the waves were just sections of the same almost unbroken reef that stretched for five kilometres and beyond. 
Being Good Friday, it was crowded, and for once the local boys were out in force. They surfed aggressively and well, and, while we got some waves, us gringos were put firmly in our place. I shared my usually solitary lunch spot under the trees at Domes Beach with a huge local holiday crowd while whales breached in the Desert Chao Channel. The next day I surfed some of the biggest waves I caught that year at Dogman's. The waves weren't quite as good as Soup Bowl or Cane Garden Bay, but I got one of the waves of my life at Domes the next day when I rode a pretty big wave the length of the beach, about 300 metres. Apparently this was a big achievement. Rachel and Valerie, two American girls, had set up in the village for the winter, financing their extended stay by taking and selling good photos of the visiting surfers. Once a month, they held a slideshow at Tambu beside the point, one of the local bars. The surfing community convened to review the month's best rides and wipeouts. The atmosphere rivaled my first surf movie experience in 1975, when Hal Jepsen's Super Session was shown at the Balgala Cinema in Sydney. It was interesting to discover that a still image shown on a big screen in a crowded, dark room can elicit the same response as a moving image. The audience's subjective guesses about what happened before and after that single captured millisecond create an unresolved tension with its own unique, unspoken drama. There's also time to study every detail of that moment in much more depth than when watching a real-time moving image that rolls directly onto the next millisecond than the next. Andrew Kidman and George Greeno, among others, have employed this principle in their seminal films by showing waves and rides in super slow motion, almost frame by frame. In the last few days on Puerto Rico, I realised I was asking too much of my beloved surfboard Byron to make the journey on her own. Water had been getting in through cracks in the fibreglass round her nose and dents were deepening where the foam was starting to collapse. I asked the local boardmaker, Rusty Elwood, to make Byron a companion, a modern 6 foot 10 thruster with plenty of volume wrapped in carbon fibre cloth for added strength. Then I bought a properly padded double board bag to replace the feeble bubble wrap sleeve that Byron had braved all her life. April was half gone. It was time to leave the Caribbean islands and jump 2,000 kilometres west to Central America. I feel groovy. Vámonos a Costa Rica. In the next chapter of 1993, we'll go way back in time to give this journey some context. It'll be 40 years in five minutes, so hang on to your hats. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Thanks for dropping in. See ya!